Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Mark Hockersang. He was an executive at Nike and Adidas, where he helped grow the soccer divisions of two of the world's largest sports brands and extend their reach across the world. Since moving into angel investing with Oregon Sports, Mark has continued his legacy of mentoring people who want to make a positive impact through technology startups. Mark has also started a popular newsletter and is the host of the excellent Heavy Hitter Sports podcast. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Um, We'd love to start out by uh, having you take us back to the beginning of your story and share a little bit about why you fell in love with sports uh, at such a young age and kind of get up to speed in terms of where things are going right now. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Well, I was born in San Francisco, and I guess my first organized sports league or team was in baseball, playing for the Braves in Tiburon. And uh, that was a period of time where we were still using wood bats and flannel uniforms and all that good stuff. Um, But I feel like sports has always been embedded in my life, Uh, baseball, skiing, football, and the like, um, as a young athlete. And then later from a coaching standpoint, because I coached my son for 10 years or so. I was talking to somebody recently, and I actually do think that DNA is part, or um, baseball is part of my DNA. It's just kind of embedded within, and I've never really thought of a kind of life without sport being involved. And then I had the luxury and the advantage and the privilege of working in the industry for 30 plus years, working for Easton Sports for eight years, and then kind of advancing to VP of Sales and Marketing for Easton. And then because I did grow up here in Portland, um, my wife and I moved back here to Portland. I started my career with Nike and had two stints there that amounted to about 20 years. And then in between ran my own consulting firm, actually focused really on recruiting for sporting goods companies for three years. And then uh, briefly worked for Adidas as well for three years. So that's a quick run through. Thanks, Mark. You're definitely a Renaissance man. And, uh, and you have, uh, um, you know, a a great team in the San Francisco giants that you root for. Uh, I worked for them for, uh, for a little bit as their peak performance coordinator and, uh, uh, what a special uh, city, what a special uh, team. Um, yeah, no, it's been a phenomenal year. And uh, I felt like all year as a fan, I was playing with house money because I certainly didn't expect, nor I don't think anybody expected, even the players themselves and even Kapler. This was such an exceptional year. And in my background here, I don't think you can see it full life, but full force, but is a uh, shot of Madison Bumgarner. Because mm-hmm. um, I think the way that Roberts managed his pitching staff, both in the Giants series and then later against the Braves, is a testament to only so many pitchers can really keep up with that kind of pace being thrown 
into play without much rest, but um, Bumgarner and his five plus innings against the Royals was just one of the most phenomenal sports feats that I've seen. Now I'm a vice Giants fan, of course, but I thought that was just remarkable. Well, a little anecdote, uh, being around him for a few years, he is the strongest human being I've ever been around. He would pick up other players and just kind of move them around back in the training room. Uh, a, a really sweet guy inside a, you know, really tough exterior, but uh, what a legend. Um, and being able to watch him and, and uh, Posey go at it, you know, uh, what a great one-two punch. Yeah, no, they were phenomenal and they were a good tandem. Uh, and it's great to see Posey having had such a phenomenal year as well after having taken off last year. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's one of my all-time favorites, just in terms of just being uh, a class, uh, you know, sportsman on the field and just a great guy off the field. But well, I chose um, not to wear my Posey uh, jersey for this one since I used it last week for another event. So You should have. Yeah. Well, Phil's more of a cricket guy, so... Uh... No, I'm not. No, I'm not. You know I'm more of a rugby guy, Jim. That's true. That's true. Well, uh, Phil, I only have one thing to offer from a cricket standpoint. I'm a few, one of the few Americans that's actually seen a World Cup cricket in the final. Mm. Um, and I did this while working for Easton, and we saw England play the West Indies. And I feel oh, wow. like this was 88. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was phenomenal. And I really did not come into the match knowing much about cricket at all, but I was with a number of people who were intimately involved and obviously over eight hours, you get a good sense for it. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that was back in like the, the, the beefy, the Ian Botham glory days. Exactly. No, he was, yeah. he was on the team and I, I didn't see this cause I wasn't in the locker room, but I think this was still at the time where you could smoke during the locker room in the locker room <laughs> if you chose to, you know, like a different athletic world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as one does back when performance enhancing drugs were, um, were were Guinness and cigarettes. Exactly. Whatever works. Whatever works. Yeah, exactly. No, that's good. Well, next time you wear that jersey, I'll wear my New Zealand All Blacks jersey. And then, Jim, what do you got? Oh, I'm going to have to wear a Giants, San Francisco Giants jersey, or maybe an Oregon Ducks football mm-hmm. jersey. Yeah. After this weekend, that was a nice win against the Ducks, or uh, excuse me, against UCLA. Yeah, yeah, although yeah. I believe your team um, and your alma mater, uh, Mark, is USC. Is that right? Yeah, I'm uh, growing a little bit slow about broadcasting that fact. But yeah, actually, I got my undergraduate and my MBA as well from USC. And so this has been a tough year. So Yeah, speaking of which, um, a lot of people might not know, you know, they may expect um, one of your degrees from there is your, is your MBA, which obviously set you up pretty well for for the business world and the great success you had uh, in your business career. But if I'm, am I correct in thinking that you also have a, a BA in psychology or a BSc? I, do. I think, yeah. I think as a young man, my dream job would have been gyms, right. As a sports psychologist. <laughs> mm. And uh, I think by the time I got to my senior year, I had thought I was going on to law school and then um, did get into USC's law school, but chose to go to business school instead I realized I had enough self-awareness to know that I was fascinated by the human mind and really enjoyed studying psychology, but I didn't have enough empathy to be a great psychologist. I just knew that I couldn't really kind of be excellent in that field. So um, I did go right on to uh, get an MBA after I graduated. Yeah. Well, I think you're not giving yourself enough credit because you did display a a leader's mind um, and a champion's mind in your career. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the the mindset tools or techniques that that served you well through everyone has ups and downs in the business world. And obviously 
some of those companies, whether it be Eastern or Nike or Adidas, have been in the ascendancy really since you joined them. And probably just because of your influence, of course. No, no Phil Knight, you know, nothing else. Exactly. No Michael Jordan, Agassi, Sampras, you know, nothing else at Nike. But um, nope. in all seriousness, could you share a little bit about some of the mindset tools, tips or techniques you've used over the years for your own career? Sure. I think um, I don't know that I'm an overachiever, but I do believe in uh, the value of hard work. So that's been embedded within. I think what I realized early on, too, although I'm competitive, it's not in a cutthroat corporate sense. I've always enjoyed being around bright people and hiring people who are brighter than myself and being part of successful teams. And so I have gravitated maybe subconsciously to working with some leaders. Um, I began my career working for a department store in the Bay Area, but then I joined the Gap in their corporate headquarters. And that was a really phenomenal learning experience as well, working for Mickey Drexler, who had come in to reshape mm. the company. And then my, probably my most exciting job came at a very early age at 27. I was helping coordinate the opening of the first international stores in London, in Richmond, in Croydon, and in uh, Oxford Street. So that was great. But um, my boss at the time was married to the president of Easton Sports. And so that got me involved in the sporting goods world. And I think sporting goods is a really fascinating career. And I loved being connected to athletes. So if anything, what I enjoyed most was talking to young athletes because in all those companies and for the vast majority of companies in sporting goods, they're focused on enhancing an athlete's performance, right? So in essence, you really have to talk to that athlete as to what they need in the way of equipment. Uh, Jim, you're talking to them about other things, the mental mindset and the like. But I do think surrounding yourself with really talented people and just trying to keep up and stay equal to and rise kind of with um, has been a big part of it. Um, I think there are other things. One of the business books that I've most enjoyed reading recently is Bob Iger's um, book, the former chairman of, of Disney. And his formula is relatively simple, but I think having empathy, having compassion kind of putting in the hard work, rolling up the sleeves, getting after it and not just telling your team what to do, but in essence, kind of being there in the trenches, I think has also been really important as well. No, I love that. And I think, um, so what you did then was the opposite of what former um, Apple executive and, you know, podcast host, New York Times bestselling author now, Guy Kawasaki, um, who has one of the best names ever, by the way. I love just saying it. Guy Kawasaki, it's fun to say. Yeah. But yeah. Um, he, he says that the, the temptation among leaders with fragile egos and insecurities is that B players hire C players, C players yeah. hire. And so, so we go down because they don't want to be challenged or outshone. So what you're saying is, in fact, the opposite, that you recognize maybe your weaknesses or your blind spots or areas where others were experts and then you deliberately hired a, only A or A-plus players. So there were only A players on that bus. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's really key. Um, and I guess, I mean, I've got an ego like everyone else, but I think it's more embedded within team success than it is individual effort. Um, it sounds a little bit cliched, but, you know, team first. I think the proudest accomplishment in my career is hiring three individuals who later became presidents of sporting goods companies, right? Because it's one thing to kind of talk it, but it's quite another thing to actually be able to identify talent, help them realize their potential and set them on their way. Um, I've had the advantage of having some really good direct bosses throughout my career. Um, very few bad apples. Um, but when I look a couple layers above, 
there it's been a mixed bag, right? And I think those that I've most identified with and where I've given 100% of my effort or even more were those leaders who basically had a bit of humility, could set direction, clarify, make it come to life so that basically everybody was part of that vision and felt like we had a common goal. And um, having a sense of humor and knowing your team, I think is critically important as well. And that's easy to say, but I think it's a lot harder. Um, my last division within Nike, our GM had 300 people to manage. One did a ordinary job, another excelled after he came in. And basically it was the people skills basically. Um, and the notion that we're all in it together and let's get after it um, made all the difference, I think, with the more effective leader. I love that. Um, so among those three then that, that you helped, you know, grow and pour into and mentor to some extent, when, what was it about one of them or maybe all three? What did you look for in terms of their character when you were assessing, mm-hmm. are these the kind of people I want to develop? And if so, what is it that makes them stand out? What, what is it about them that, that makes me think I, I can pour into them and mentor them and help coach them up and, and then just, you know, and empower them to be the, you know, to rise above to an even greater degree. Well, I think one individual I'll call out is Mike Slackett, who is the president of Rawlings now, and they also oversee Easton as well. And uh, I can still remember hiring Mike. Uh, it took some effort. This was during a different era where you were not kind of online searching resumes and people weren't connecting you directly. I can remember one night in my living room, kind of on the dining room table, going three hundred, going through 300 hard copy resumes to pull out, you know, four or five that I wanted to pursue. And Mike at the time was early on in his career, he was the, uh, the director of marketing for a racetrack in the Bay Area. So he did not have the typical background for a product manager at Easton Sports, which was focused on baseball and football and, soccer and um, hockey at the time, softball. And it took me three rounds with my boss, the president to hire Mike because he just didn't see what I saw in Mike. Uh, exceptionally bright. Now he didn't live and breathe and die for the sake of baseball and so- and softball and hockey and football, but sharp mind, one of the most effective at getting things done of anyone that I've ever encountered. Um, and he just worked exceptionally hard, but also had a good sense for family as well. So he wasn't hundred percent consumed by the job, but he just got it done. And uh, now, you know, it turned out to be a great hire. Yeah. On the flip side, when you've looked for mentors and, and, those who have blazed the trail before you to uh, to pour into you um, to sort of flip this. So you become sort of the mentor, the mentee, which again, I guess then in turn allows you to mentor others. What have you looked for in a mentor? That's, really, that's a great question. Um, I don't know that I have one individual who stands out as a mentor. I've had some really good bosses that have helped me along the way. And I guess maybe it's a sense of um, belief in my ability past what I actually think that I can do, right? I know my first break, substantial break was when I was uh, at Easton and um, I was group marketing manager and our president asked me to become director of marketing, which was a dream job for me. I didn't know that I thought I was ready at the time. This was overseeing product development and brand marketing and the like and sourcing uh, for Easton sports. But it turned out to be one of the most enjoyable work experiences. And we were in a high growth mode and I had a really good young team that I could both also mentor as well. But my boss at the time, Doug Kelly, just had enough faith to go, oh, you can do this. And then he later gave me sales as addition to responsibility of marketing. 
And at that point, I just thought my love was marketing. So I was like, no, I'll politely decline. And uh, the third time he asked, I had no option but to take that on. And that actually turned out to be a good move in the sense that I came into Nike working within a sales management job. So it was my mm. entree into getting back to Portland and working with probably the best company within the industry. So, Yeah. Well, along those lines, Mark, uh, is there a uh, professional life lesson, um, a professional or a life lesson uh, that you learned from Phil Knight? Dude, that's a good, that's a great question. So I did not work directly for Bill or Phil, sorry, or have much direct interaction. Although I will say this going back to the giants, I can remember on a Friday, you know, it's kind of a casual dress day. Well, basically every day is a casual dress day at Nike. And I was wearing a giants cab because this was right during or shortly thereafter from a world series win. And you'll know Joe panic, but Phil and I did not know who Joe panic was at the time. But he was, he saw me in the elevator. We were riding down the elevator together. And he said, oh, that's second baseman from the Giants. Another moment that I thought was kind of interesting was like walking out on a Friday afternoon. He was walking back in. And a woman right next to me goes, Phil, what are you doing working late on a Friday? And he's like, hey, because he's an accountant by trade. It's like, eh, somebody's got to pay the bills. Um, I think what's amazing about Phil, and I grew up here in Portland, so when Nike was created in 72, I was 15. So basically I was wearing my Cortezes every day. And I think if you're an Oregonian, you have a great sense of um, pride in Phil and the company. And it's arguably the great American success story, right? You know, this is a man who had a vision, you know, did his paper in Stanford Graduate School and turned it into reality and started selling shoes out of the back of a van, you know, kind of where you are, Jim, kind of within Eugene now. Um, and then along the way, and there were moments in time, you know, if you've read the shoe dog, you know, which is great chronologing of kind of the trials and tribulations associated with the company, there were any number of moments where if something had gone the other direction, the company would have gone out of business and he persevered and had the ability to hire some really good talent and then created the formula of, you know, amazing product backed by the world's best athletes, right? Which is a formula that still works for others, but probably not as well as anybody but Nike. Yeah, I could recall uh, Phil and I are going to geek out uh, uh, <laughs> on uh, the Chicago Bulls, but uh, uh, I was at Beaverton High School, and uh, I remember some uh, Nike representatives came and showed us the uh, some of the student athletes. They showed us the first, uh, you know, uh, Air Jordans, and uh, you know what we think about them it was kind of like a focus group. And uh, we were pretty impressed and <laughs> the rest was history. But uh, yeah, it's been fun watching Nike from day one, kind of, you know, just become uh, just, you know, an amazing company all around. Um, and uh, what a special experience that was. It's amazing since you're mentioning Jordan here. I saw today that um, this is the second largest valued shoe ever sold uh, behind uh, a Kanye Weezy. But um, today somebody bought a rookie Jordan pair of shoes for $1.5 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's crazy. People, yeah. And people just, love them. And like you said, it was the gamble because the spread before that was Converse had Larry and Magic, right? Like their thing yep. was a stable of athletes. Whereas I wouldn't say Phil necessarily bet the farm on Michael, but he kind of at least bet the main farm building and a couple of outbuildings and a few acres on Michael. Yeah, no, it's amazing what a one decision can do to a company, either positively or negatively. And that turned out to be a genius move, obviously, given how successful Jordan was on the court. And then from a retail standpoint, how successful he's been as well with the Jordan brand. 
definitely. Um, although sometimes, I guess, with when you scale up really quick, you can become a victim of your own success, and that creates its own challenges, right? So, so you uh, fast forward a little bit for us in your career, and as Nike's growing, I believe you at, near the end were overseeing, you know, like a two billion dollar a year plus soccer division or soccer apparel division. Is that right? Yeah, we were about a billion dollars at the time. Okay, uh, from a pure soccer apparel standpoint. Yeah. So what were some of the challenges is that, you know, Nike continued, it wasn't just Jordan blows up the basketball division, but obviously tennis, running, um, you know, soccer. What was that like to be on that roller coaster? And how did you uh, do more than just hang on for dear life, but but thrive in that scenario? Well, I think global football, it's not part of my DNA. You know, I, I would rank it probably number four in terms of sports that I love and live for. Um, I put baseball first and college football and pro football and the NBA in front of it. But I think global football is so dynamic and it's so important to so many cultures and so many people and so many fans around the world that being part of that and having a really good competitor in Adidas to go head to head with was fascinating. I mean, I love that just from a pure competitive business standpoint. And in apparel, that ranged anywhere from outfitting youth, you know, football players and high school players and college players to the pros, right? And so, you know, and there you're talking about licensed jerseys and the like. And that's a dynamic business. And so much of that is, yes, it's fan popular, you know, popularity of teams and that can ebb and tide or ebb and flow. But in essence, so much of it too is like, who's hot as a player, right? And then when somebody gets transferred, because that's crazy stuff. I think one of the most exciting moments that I had when I was at Nike working in global football was when Neymar first transferred from FCB to PSG. We had some wind, but only like a week or two in advance of that. And the way that the first transfer window works, it's right when the jerseys are basically going into market for sale. So when something like that happens, um, I'll come back to a, uh, a story here involving somebody in the NBA world to bring it to life. But basically when we were able within two weeks time to get um, PSG number 10, Neymar jerseys up and going on our site for young fans kind of within Paris and France and everywhere else. That was so exciting. That was so dynamic and so much fun. Um, no, I love that. Tell us that NBA story real quick. To well, I think, it, I think it was like 30,000 plus jerseys that were um, on the water when Kyrie was traded early on in the season. And basically if you have an old team with a player's name and number on it, it has literally no value whatsoever. So, you know, that happened has happened more times than not. Um, now, I think if you're a fan from a distance, you go like, well, why can't a manufacturer basically just turn on a dime? But that's just not the way, the way supply chains work. And there's so many things that go into the fabrication of a jersey mm. and so many suppliers that are involved that it just it takes a couple months generally. So, No, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, though, that you despite if a player's played for multiple teams, I mean, obviously when there's just one team, you know, it's a Kobe thing. Um, you had two different Jersey numbers, of course, um, with the Lakers, but, or, you know, Dirk Nowitzki or Dallas, well, they still change the design of the uniforms. And then there's like the swingman jerseys. And so I guess maybe sometimes if, um, even if a player stays with, does that rare thing of staying with one team, his or her entire career now, there can still be multiple variations, even within one or two seasons, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And you think about um, somebody we were talking about, Buster Posey, early mm. on, the catcher for the Giants. Now, Buster spent his entire career with the San Francisco Giants. 
But Nike during the last couple of years has taken on that contract with Major League Baseball clubs. But before that, Majestic and the Multitude. So not all fans, but I think most fans want the latest and greatest and the most authentic. And that tends to be with the current manufacturer, right? So even that dynamic when um, colleges change, um, you know, we were talking earlier on um, off mic about UCLA playing Oregon. And now that uh, UCLA is a brand Jordan team, that's a whole different dynamic than when they were previously with our Reebok way back when and Adidas and, and UA in a failed experiment as well. So, no, I love that. So we, we've kind of talked about, you know, your rise within the world, the world of sports and, and sports apparel and, you know, le- leadership within this realm. Could you share with us maybe a, um, a challenge or even what at the time you may have perceived as a failure or a big setback and then talk us through just the mindset around how you, you process that you picked yourself up, dusted yourself off and then kept going. Yeah. Um, couple of things come to mind. Um, I can remember at Easton, I had an idea that turned out not to be a good one. And it was in the interest of growing our business. And we were focused on baseball and softball and football and hockey. But we were approached by a sports medicine company as well. So we entertained doing knee braces and the like. And it was with a really good partner and I thought there was a good match because we were involved in so many different sports and the experiment turned out it failed. And in part, because we didn't really, it was away from our core strength and it was also reliant on turning product really quickly. And we had to have a different business formula because we had to work with all of our retailers and basically not so much pay slotting fees, but basically take out their old inventory to replace it with our inventory. So that was not something we had ever done before. That was a direct hit to our bottom line. But more specifically beyond that, we were willing to do that with Sportmar and a couple other key retailers, but we could not turn the product quickly enough within our warehouse to be a really efficient supplier. So I think it took us about 18 months before we got out of that business. So, Mm. and I guess the lesson learned from my standpoint was know what your mission is know what your core strengths are and don't veer away from that. Even if there's a revenue opportunity in front that you think might be a good idea. And I think the other thing is I probably could have looked a little bit deeper at the time, but I was so caught up in this idea and I had to be the champion internally to make it happen that I didn't dig deep enough under the covers to basically, you know, kind of see that this was something that was not ideally suited for us. Well, I love that you use that as a learning opportunity. And I know, um, from researching you a little bit more before the call that you have a, a quote on your LinkedIn profile, I believe from Leonardo da Vinci that forgive me if I butcher it, but goes something like learning never exhausts the mind. And we were talking off camera a little bit about how you said, well, since I retired and I said, well, wait a second, you haven't retired. You're, you're doing venture capital investing now. Um, you're hosting a podcast, you're, you're mentoring, you're doing an awful lot more things than most people in the prime of their career would even entertain juggling. So um, what does that Da Vinci quote mean to you? And how, how, how do you continue to put that into practice? Well, it came to me a little bit later on, I guess I've always been interested and fascinated with learning. Now, early on, when you're in school, you have to be right. But in essence, um, I've always loved reading. I've always loved trying to improve. Um, And Jim, I've always been interested in positive psychology, even from a really early age. You know, that kind of gets back to via learning, 
figuring out how you can improve and get better and make more of an impact. And so that's always been kind of embedded within my mindset. It was fortified or reinforced when I did strength finders, which I actually think is a, it's a great tool to kind of ascertain kind of what your inherent strengths are and kind of topping the chart is learning. And um, in connection with that, I'm an achiever, right? So in essence, as you were talking about, I'm not a really good retiree because as soon as I did retire from my corporate life, I was like, well, how do I stay connected to sport in an interesting way where I can learn and develop? And so I tackled two things that I did not know much about. I knew that I loved podcasts because once the pandemic had hit and I was in Zoom calls, you know, kind of around the clock, I would uh, take off around 5.30 or 6 o'clock and go for an hour walk and listen to podcasts, right? It was just a way of kind of refreshing. And um, I thought I had something to offer. And when I was leaving, I sent a note to some friends and coworkers and said, hey, here's some things I'm about thinking about doing during my retirement. You guys are both successful authors. I thought I had a book in me, but when I sent out a kind of a list of things I was thinking about, what resonated most for people was, oh, I'd listen to you talking about sports, right? And as you also know, because you're podcaster, it's like it takes a while to get up to speed and learn the fundamentals, but I thought that would be a good learning experience and I've really enjoyed it. And I love all aspects of it from, you know, booking guests to recording the interviews to doing the editing and the like. In connection with that, I've always been interested in startups and I've been involved in startups, but within larger corporations, uh, like the equipment division within Nike and starting new business ventures with East and some of which were successful. And I just enjoy the, the notion of trying to learn how to invest successfully in startups and work with founders. And um, I was in an event this weekend, um, actually yesterday with some entrepreneurs and it's such hard work and I'm so in such awe of, people taking the gamble and doing it and uh, doing it successfully as well. And I did run my own executive search business for three years, but there was not a lot of capital that went into that. That was just an interruption in my corporate career. So I just have so much admiration from four startups. And now that I can do it within the spring as world or the sports world, all the better. For sure. And within that world, I know that Black Founders Matter is one of the groups that you've come alongside. Can you talk to us a little bit about that partnership? Yeah, so I'm embedded within Oregon Sports Angels. And so we're independent investors, but bonded together through a network. And about two thirds of us have also invested within Black Founders Matter. A couple of amazing, successful BC folks here based in Portland, um, African-American have started this organization up. And so they now have invested in a portfolio of 12 companies. And so yesterday we were invited to uh, their first annual meeting with a number of those founders actually present. So it's a good opportunity to invest back into a community that has typically been underserved when it comes to investment dollars. Because if you think about it, most startups come from that friends and family world. So in essence, that presupposes that there's gonna be inherent wealth within that immediate community, right? To get them off, off and going. And that may not always be the case uh, with founders, um, you know, founders of color. So in essence, it was really refreshing, energizing, and exciting to kind of see those entrepreneurs in action. Um, I will say this selfishly as well from an Oregon sports angel standpoint, this is also a conduit in order to get some minority owned businesses kind of into our preview purview for investment purposes as well, right? Um, so it's a mutually beneficial relationship. So it's been very exciting. And I think um, one other organization that I'm thinking about getting more actively involved with also provides access to 
uh, kids who can't afford or parents who cannot afford startup fees for leagues and teams and the like. And so I've got a, a, a podcast that's going to be set up with the, the founder of this organization very soon. So um, basically it just gets back to providing access for um, black founders when it comes to startups or any athlete who just wants to play. And in some cases, um, you know, I grew up in a relatively affluent setting. So in essence, I didn't have to worry about my mom and dad paying for fees, whether it was baseball or football or whatever it might be. But way too many kids actually do have to worry about that or denied access into sport, both here in the U.S. and around the world. One of the things that Nike has really been passionate about is providing greater access uh, for young girls to sport, right? And they have a long heritage of successfully funding some ventures in that respect. And having worked in global football for the last five years there, that's a really important part of um, growing the football business. Because here in the U.S. and in Canada and a few other countries, you know, the women's game has been at the equal to the men's game, but that's generally not the case around the world. So it takes a little bit of extra effort in order to provide that access to young girls. Yeah, I think that's great. Just being able to champion different groups and, uh, and uh, everyone wins by doing that. Um, you know, we have a world series coming up with, uh, <laughs> with the Braves uh, against the Astros and uh, uh, Dusty Baker had a chance to spend some time with him when he was with the Giants. And, uh, you know, he's 72 years old right now. So, <laughs> you know, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's not good at retirement either, I don't think. But um, what was really cool is I asked him what was his favorite quote. And he said, uh, if you want to play lucky, you got to think lucky. And, and so, you know, he's big on optimism. Um, and he said that that's what helped him and helps him as a man, helped him as a player, but also helps him as a manager that always thinking something good's going to happen and being prepared for that. Um, you've talked about having a growth mindset. You've talked about, you know, work, work ethic. Would you also consider yourself an, an optimist? That's interesting. I am. Um, well, before I answer that question, I'll come back to that, but I had the pleasure of working with Dusty as well. When I was at Easton, uh, he was a sponsored manager of the giants at the time. And that's actually the last time that he was in you know, that setting and won the National League in 2002. He was such a pleasure to work with because he is such a bright guy and he has so many interests. I think, Phil, you mistakenly called me the Renaissance man, but I would view that I would view Dusty Baker in that vein. Um, I can remember having a cocktail with him just at a, at a corporate function and he could talk about any subject um, with depth and insight. And yeah, there's a sense of optimism and positivity because I think his start at the time was Barry Bonds and I love Bonds. He's one of my favorite baseball players, but he, I'm sure, was difficult to manage at times, right? He could be prickly and uh, certainly didn't handle the press well. And uh, But Dusty was always political, political in the good sense, and spoke only of the positives of that relationship and the like. When it comes to optimism, I actually think, I don't know if you've read the book Radical Candor, mm. but basically it kind of preaches the virtues associated with being direct and honest in the work context. <laughs> We, uh, we were all given this book kind of within our global merchandising group within Nike. And I read it and I took it to heart. So I was playing the game that way. But I think when you're expressing radical candor, everybody has to know what the rules of the game are. Because I think at times I could get into trouble by, um, in the vernacular of radical candor, it's basically having a black hat on. So basically you can, you're concerned about looking around the corner to see what that obstacle or that challenge or that problem may be. And I believe that I have the ability to do that, but at times that can be misconstrued as being negative, right? But in my mind, it's more the sense of being prepared so that you can improvise later. Mm. Um, 
So inherently, am I an optimist? I wish I was, but I think there's a sense of skepticism and um, not anxiety, but it's the anticipation of what's to come and being trying to be prepared for that. Hmm. And I think it's, um, my wife still works for Intel. She's worked there for 25 years. And uh, there's a good Andy Grove. Um, I think he actually titled his book, Only the Paranoid Survive. Now, I don't think I would go that ex you know, extreme, but I think different styles can work for different people. Absolutely. Yeah, I went to uh, Intel's in Beaverton, and uh, then I moved to Phoenix, and uh, it's, it's in Phoenix as well. So, um, But yeah, it's, uh, 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 your wife must be a peak performer as well then. Oh, yeah. Now she's a, she's an achiever. She's a hardworking, she's, she's brighter than I, um, as and you probably have some sensor Intel, Intel can have meetings on a Thursday at six in the morning mm -hmm. and she can wrap up with a meeting at 10 o'clock at night. So it's relentless. Um, uh, but it's also a good company, um, that she's given her heart and soul to. And, uh, yeah, so well, no, it's been a good marriage from a corporate standpoint. Yep. Along those lines for you and also for your wife, uh, any lessons, um, in terms of rest and recovery, uh, you know, Phil and I talk a lot about peak mm. performance and, um, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of going to the max in terms of your preparation, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, but you also have to rest well, or you're going to burn out. Uh, what have you learned from that? Now that's a, that's a good question. I think in my retirement, although we were kind of joking about it being a busy retirement, I do have greater flexibility in terms of how I want to structure my day or my week, right? Because I'm not at the beck and call of, a zoom call that's going to be at 10 o'clock and another one at 11 and the like, I have some greater sense of control. And I think that helps in and of itself. Um, I'm inherently an introvert. So to me, when I need to rest or recover, it may be just spending a half hour reading, right? Typically at night. Um, and as we talked about, I think disconnecting, going for a walk, kind of being in your own thoughts and, or listening to a podcast is also a way for me to recharge. Um, I was joking with my wife yesterday because I was out for about five and a half hours on a Sunday, you know, interacting and, you know, it's energizing to some degree, but then I need to um, kind of reset myself, right? Because some people get their inherent energy from associating with others. And I like a little bit of that. But what I've learned over time is that I'm much better with a one-on-one -on -one situation, right? Because I really mm -hmm. enjoy learning more about the two of you individuals. I may be the world's worst cocktail party person, right? So that's not where I'm getting energy you know, talking about not important things with a variety of people that I may not know. Um, and I think, I think in a corporate career, even at Nike, one of the benefits of Nike is that if you played soccer, you were still embedded within the sport and you worked within global football, you could break out there for an hour at lunch and, and you know, with a pickup game and the like and stuff like that. Um, I don't think I was as religious about doing those types of things, but I do think kind of, you know, mind and body and wanting both to be strong is critically important. So I think, you know, there's the old Abraham Lincoln, if I'm going to chop down a tree, I'm going to spend, you know, the two hours going at it and the four hours sharpening the saw. I wish I was a little more diligent in that respect, um, but I'm trying to do so now kind of in that retirement zone. Yeah, Nike's a special environment. Uh, when my sister worked at the world headquarters, she would say, hey, come on over and work out. And I'd go work out and the San Antonio Spurs would be in the weight room or whatever. And, you know, the uh, pickup basketball games were pretty fierce. <laughs> so <laughs> Phil would have loved that as a, you know, as a, as a, as a basketball player. 
Yeah, no, it's inspirational. And it's, uh, you know, it's been a good venue to draw in. You were talking about professional athletes, but one of the things I've most enjoyed through the years is the opening, which brings in the, uh, the best high school football players mm -hmm. from around the country and for a tournament. And that's just been amazing because they're all basically four and five star athletes. And in many cases, you know, where they're going to be playing in college. And so, you know, the litany of amazing players that have performed there has just been stellar and to be close up because it's not an event where there are a lot of fans, you know, it's like the best high school athletes in the country. And you're talking about playing in front of in person, maybe three, 400. So it's a great, you know, venue to see the very best, you know, kind of just right at your fingertips, so to speak. No, I love that. Um, when it, so going back to your own podcast, can you tell us a bit more about the scope of that? And also maybe this is a two-part question now, but uh, some of the preparation and research that went into it, we see you've got a pretty professional setup there. I have some professional gear on the way, but I uh, <laughs> won't get here until after this episode, unfortunately. But yeah, tell us, so tell us a little bit about going from, you know, you having the idea of doing it, friends and family encouraging you to you kind of forming the vision for it and then figuring out how to do the darn thing. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, sometimes you have to be careful what you ask for. I can remember I had had dental surgery that day. So I was late at night and I was just kind of looking social media. And I don't know if you're uh, familiar with Jake Olson, but Jake is the blind football player from USC. Now he's an entrepreneur himself and we're invested within his company Engage. But I had grown up with Jake, so to speak. I had um, watched the initial ESPN video. So Jake, if you remember, um, lost one eye early on. And then um, due to cancer, basically, he lost his full sight at the age of 12. And in the middle of this, he was adopted by Pete Carroll and the USC Trojans. And so ESPN was there. And the night before his last surgery, uh, Jake was there at practice and he had gone to the Notre Dame game back in South Bend with the Trojans and the like. And so um, from that point forward, I had just followed Jake's career and I was looking on social media and I was wondering, and Jake was explaining to others how he is so active on social media by virtue of being blind. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to invite Jake to be my first podcast guest because there's nobody else I would rather speak to than Jake Olson. And he came back at nine o'clock the next morning and said, I'd be happy to. So at that point, I had to rally and figure out how to do this. I had spent some time thinking about it and I had some equipment, but not a lot. And then um, right after talking to Jake, and he was amazing, is an amazing man. Um, I asked Jim Morris of the rookie fame and he too was, I'm not sure why, but he agreed to do it. And so you build some momentum, right? And because I'm interested in learning, I do like the research aspect. So I read um, both of Jake's books. Obviously I had read the rookie before I'd seen the film, but went back through that because um, like you guys, I wanted to be prepared and out of respect for my guests, know as much as I could going into it without being so overprepared that I wouldn't be surprised by a question because I think that dynamic is really important. And then I've just kind of built along those lines. And my podcast, Heavy Hitter Sports, is focused on kind of inspirational game changers, whether that be an athlete or whether it be a business leader. So I'd like it to be interesting and exciting and maybe a behind the scenes look, but I'd also like to be something in the way of tips or advice that can come out of that conversation that can benefit my listeners as well. So, and to have some fun along the way, I think one of my favorite guests is somebody that I've known more through my son, Zach Banner, who is the uh, starting 
right tackle for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Zach is a big man. Literally, he was the biggest man in college football when he was playing 6'9", 360. And he's coming back from an injury now, but um, big personality and uh, really active in so many different arenas and so good about giving back to the community. And I think one of the things I most like about podcasting, and I knew it going into it, was the ability to reach out to people that you might not have the opportunity to speak to or engage with. Uh, but because there's a forum and there's a connection um, and there's the ability to help each other out, um, people more than likely will say yes. Um, and I think most of us like talking about ourselves. And if you can, through your research, figure out what might be the most interesting element to talk about with the guest. But again, it goes back to being prepared so that you can improvise because in essence, although I've got a litany of questions, um, I really want to follow the lead of the people that I'm talking to on my podcast. So, yeah, you're so psychologically minded um, and, and self-aware. And you know, as Phil mentioned, uh, you know, you you uh, undergraduate degree in psychology at USC. Um, does that run in the family at all, or where where, where, does, it, where does that come from? No, I think uh, my dad was an engineer. Uh, my mom comes from a legal background. My wife's an engineer, so. I think a little bit differently, and my and our son is uh, very creative, very talented, uh, but he's wired differently than I am. So I'm not quite sure where that really comes from. Um, now, having said that, I'm adopted, so in essence, to some degree, I don't really know where all that comes from, right? Um, so yeah, somehow that factors into this as well. I think I've had to be kind of self-sufficient throughout my life. So in essence, um, yeah, I don't know. So. Yeah. I think some of that might come from sports too, because we all hit walls in sports and, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we're challenged every day. And so we have to do a lot of self-reflection, you know, what's working, what's not working. Um, and we learn a lot from others, you know, teammates and coaches. Well, you know, you actually, you know, the combination of sharing that, that I was adopted and talking about sports and the value of does make me think, I guess, maybe to some degree, cause I've always been much more inclined to be gravitating towards team sports, right? Although I love skiing, but even there we were competing on teams, you know, so my sports that I've played throughout my years have been baseball and football. And really that you have individual moments where it's you, whether it's, you know, behind the plate or on the hill or shortstop or at the plate. Mm -hmm. um, but in essence, they've all been team sports. So maybe on some level, it sounds like psychobabble. Maybe I'm looking for that team, right? By virtue of kind of being connected. And that falls through within my, my favorite um, business moments have always been oriented towards team wins, right? Um, you know, one of the things I was most happy about was opening those first international stores for the gap. And that ultimately turned into a $2 billion business. And I loved being, when I first joined Nike, it was within the equipment division. And ultimately I was the U S director of sales there and basically going after the biggest and the best in certain niche categories that Nike was not involved with, uh, whether it was Timex with watches or Oakley with sunglasses or the Eastons and the Rollins of the world in baseball um, was a really interesting, engaging period of time. And we had 30 reps that were kind of on our team and some were veteran Nike reps and others were reps from those competitors and had industry knowledge that they were bringing into play and to try and get after those competitors and be successful and kind of earn our stripes within the Nike world was really energizing, really exciting, really fun. Yeah, that's great. So you've talked a little bit about how the team grew over the years. How did you still keep try as a leader to 
keep things personal to maybe keep a smaller team atmosphere as best you could within this big growing and sometimes global team? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because although Nike is huge, I generally have been on smaller subsets of businesses and I think by intention, right? Because I like being able to make a difference and I like my teams to be able to make a difference. So although when I think about, and I think we had talked about, you know, the soccer apparel business and Nike being a billion dollars, I go back to my first job and I was an assistant buyer working for a department store and I was responsible for a $10 million business. And at the time I thought that was so much money. I was taking so much pride and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for this. So in essence, it's all relative. And I think um, maybe with time, and I wish I had been better throughout my entire career, I think to be a successful leader, you need to be vulnerable, right? You need to kind of expose yourself. And um, that takes some confidence in yourself and your teammates, um, those that you might supervise to be vulnerable but I think it pays off. I mean, I think going back to Bob Iger, I think he was very good at that, right? And you think about how large of an organization, how multifaceted Disney was, but I think I think one of the things that I've learned throughout the years is you can't read enough biographies, right? I mean, basically learning's about learning from people who are more knowledgeable than yourself, right? So in essence, um, so I, and it's interesting, I, I'm reading as many business books today as I did when I was fully engaged within the corporate world, because in essence, I feel a sense of ownership or a sense of um, obligation to those entrepreneurs that I might be working with, right? Because in essence, I want to put my best foot forward. And although typically startup founders are looking for funds, oftentimes they need advice as well, because they can't be great in all aspects of their business, even though it's their idea, their solution. There might be some voids and by definition, startups don't have a large team that they can rely on. So in essence, I think that's where VCs or angels in my case can come into play and in certain situations actually be beneficial as a mentor or through connections or through advice or basically good questions. Because in essence, I think oftentimes leaders believe that they have to have the answers to all questions. And in some cases, yes, that's important. But oftentimes I think the really good leader is the one who's just asking the best question at the time, the appropriate time. And then um, if you've got a really good team, letting them fill in the blanks, right? And not taking credit for the great ideas of those that might be working with you. So, um, Yeah, I love that you mentioned the, uh, the investing. So similar to the question I asked you earlier, obviously there are certain benchmarks and, and maybe there's market growth potential that you see and whether it's a better mousetrap or it's a new kind of mousetrap or somewhere in between. Um, so there are those things, you know, fiscally or in terms of market opportunity that you might look for on the numbers side. But what do you and your, your colleagues look for in the character of young entrepreneurs that you want to come alongside? That's a great question because I'm a year into this and I still think I need to be better at this. But I was thinking about this recently because um, – Sometimes the analogy is you want to bet on the jockey versus the horse, meaning you want to bet on the founders versus the product or the solution or the service. But oftentimes when we're doing the vetting, many of the questions coming from me and others still go back to the product, to the marketplace, to the competition, to the like. So in essence, I think I need to be sharper at asking the questions that basically get back into why should we invest in a company that you as the founder are heading here. Um, it's part of the thing that I pride myself on in terms of, we had talked about 
you know, hiring some people who ended up being very successful in, in their careers. And I think one of the strengths that I have is being able to hire effectively, right? So in essence, to some degree now as a startup investor, I'm hiring, even though I'm not investing all the money behind their companies. In essence, if we're going to invest on the jockey, then we need to know more about the jockey and a little bit less about the horse. Um, you know, if I take it one step further, uh, there was a great Formula One race yesterday where Max Verstappen beats out Lewis Hamilton. And um, I'm not that knowledgeable when it comes to Formula One, but I think that's a better analogy because in essence, you want a great driver like those two individuals, but you also want a great manufacturer behind that car, a great car, whether it be Mercedes or now in this case, Red Bull, right? When you have the magic of the two being the very best, like with those individuals, then you have a greater chance of being successful with that startup investment. Um, but it's interesting because that payout's not going to be for three, four or five years or not at all. Right. So, um, but I think that's a really good question. I think almost to a, to a person, the entrepreneur is going to be passionate. It's his idea or it's her idea. So in essence, they're going to be consumed with it. Um, it's a nice blend of like, hey, you've got the smarts, you've got the gumption, you've got the work ethic, while also being coachable as well and knowing where you might be deficient and where you would need help, right? And so in essence, I think um, more time and attention needs to be really directed towards those types of questions on how are you going to build your team, right? What kind of culture are you going to create once you're successful? Yeah, for sure. Conversely, are there any red flags from a character standpoint when you're you're evaluating the jockey, maybe more so than the horse? Well, that's, that's a good question too. And I think one of the challenges with regard to startup investing is you can only have so many go-rounds with those two principles, with the principles involved, right? So how deep can you really go? Um, red flags. I think... Nobody likes being in the room with the, with people who think they are the smartest there. So in essence, I think it's, um, you're going to be involved with a lot of really bright, energetic, dynamic founders, but in essence, they have to listen as well. They have to be able to learn and figure out where those gaps might be within their organization or when pressed further about their solve, they have to be open to the ideas of others. Um, and that's hard, right? Because it's your baby. So of course you're going to be proud, right? But in essence, um, there are very few 100% sure things in there. So I think being able to be open to the ideas coming from others um, is important, no matter whether you're starting a business or managing a team or as an athlete. No, I love that. Um, Jim, I know you have a pretty hard stop. So do you maybe have one final question? for Mark, and then I'll ask where, where our listeners and viewers can find him, and then we'll land the plane. Sounds great, Phil. Uh, Mark, this has just been a wonderful uh, discussion. Uh, I've learned a lot. Um, you have a, a, a nice voice for this. <laughs> so uh, Thank you. I, don't know if you've, I don't know if you've practiced, but uh, it, yeah, you, you seem like a, a veteran at, at this already. But um, anything in terms of just real quick, in terms of core values, um, that, that, that you have for yourself in terms of personal core values, you know, in terms of professionally, but then also maybe in terms of where you've worked, you've worked at some amazing places, you know, any core values that stand out from those places? Well, I think one word that we haven't mentioned so far, it's related to learning, but it's curiosity, right? So I think it's, 
and that's been embedded kind of within the way that I've looked at almost everything. Um, we were talking about Renaissance. It's not so much that I just have a wide level of interest in a variety of different topics. Right. So I think that's inherently important because although I don't necessarily think of myself as the most creative person, I love being around other creative people and I love melding different ideas from different avenues. I know within the Nike world, I was pretty good at presentations and it sounds strange, but Nike is a presentation oriented culture and we have to basically present to ourselves and convince our coworkers as to which direction we should go. But I would always try and make those presentations as interesting as possible by drawing in from different reference points, whether that be film or theater or literature or what, you know, whatever it might be in order to just wake people up to be more receptive to an idea. So I think curiosity and, um, being creative as best you can is really important. We talked about the value of teamwork, right? So I think, I think one of the sad things in the corporate world today, um, was Weissman who's read the multipliers basically speaks to this. And, you know, she, she has a dramatic reference point too. And this was a guest that I had on, on my show, Lori Emmerich, who I worked with at Nike, who is um, a disciple of the organization and the like, but oftentimes now we can almost be zombie-like in our behavior in the corporate environment, because I was listening to another leadership oriented podcast this weekend. And the reference point was like 47% of all workers are not fully engaged. And I know actually, sadly, by virtue of the last engagement survey or two with a Nike, even as great of a company as that is, employees are not engaged to the point that they really should be, right? So there's something to miss within the corporate world. And there's a generational thing at play as well with millennials, basically not defining themselves by virtue of the work that they do, and expecting more of their employers than perhaps I did when I was early on within my career. So I think we're going to have to figure out something there because there's something to miss here. And um, well, such an important point, Mark. Yeah. Thank you. It really is. Well, Mark, um, remind our listeners, please, and viewers where they can learn more about your work and follow your work online. Sure. From a podcast standpoint, it's uh, heavyhittersports.com. And then I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And so you can just basically punch in my name and I'll come up. And uh, no, this has been a real pleasure speaking with both of you, Phil and Jim. So thank you very much for having me on the show. No, the pleasure is all ours. Thanks so much, Mark. And uh, yeah, hopefully next time we can, we can bring you back for a part two, because I know I have 11, 12 questions we didn't get to. And I'm guessing Jim has a bunch more too. So if you'd be open to it, we'd love to, yep. uh, love to continue this. No, definitely. No, I'd love to do that. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.